Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. All right. I'd like to welcome everybody in, get a little uh, background banter as we're starting to kick off here <laughs> and see our attendees start to filter in. I want to uh, welcome everybody. I'm Tom Gallucci with the Mortgage Collaborative. We've got a pair of esteemed discussion leaders for today's session on TMC Connect titled Achieving Affordable Home Ownership. Reality, more homes equals more homeowners. Not a difficult equation to surmise, but how you get there uh, is quite the, uh, can be quite the quandary. So we'll kind of dive a little bit more into that today. Um, before we get started and uh, introduce our discussion leaders, just going to go through some quick housekeeping items for our discussion. Uh, whether you've dialed in or you connected via your computer, all lines have been muted, and that's done only to avoid any background noise in your area and just assure that everybody can hear today's presentation clearly. That said, want our discussions to be as interactive as possible, so feel free to submit any questions, any comments that you've got through either the chat or the Q&A buttons, both of which are accessible at the bottom of your Zoom screen, and uh, I'll be able to uh, go ahead and verbalize those with our discussion leaders on your behalf. And uh, even on the comment side, if you want to shout out where you're you're joining us from or uh, you know any fun anecdotes that you're hearing here, the, uh, the more the merrier in our comments feed. Um, and then as a reminder, today's discussion is being recorded and will be available for playback. So instructions to access copy will be accessible in a, uh, a follow-up email that you'll receive tomorrow, as well as we'll have a copy of the presentation deck uh, displayed throughout today's discussion. Um, on that note, go ahead and jump right in. So leading today's discussion, uh, from our longtime partners at ArchMI, we have Vice President of Government Industry Relations, uh, Kirk Wilson. Hey, Kirk, how are you? Great, great, Tom, thrilled to be here, thank you. Always great to have you on board with us. And then um, also leading today's discussion from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, we have Chief Community Development Officer Ed Gorman. Hey, Ed. Hey, Tom. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Great to have you with us today as well. Here. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Excellent. So, you know, appreciate you guys taking the time out of your busy schedules to lead and I'll stop rambling and uh, allow us to get into the meat and potatoes today. So I'll turn it over to uh, Kirk to kick things off and then I will... Uh, Delicately try to interrupt if I get some good questions coming in through the chat. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Tom. And, and uh, I, I want to thank the Mortgage Collaborative for inviting Ed and me to, to present to you today. Uh, it's about a topic that we think is critical to the future of our nation's well-being. We've, we've both spent much of our professional lives working to improve opportunities for affordable homeownership. Me and, and a variety of policy roles in the primary, secondary, and the, now the mortgage insurance markets. Ed's history in affordable housing is even more extensive and, and really much more hands-on. In a couple of words, Ed's a builder and a developer. Uh, as, as Tom mentioned, he's now Chief Community Development Officer for the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, NCRC, in Washington, where he heads the organization's efforts to build homes for low and moderate income families under the banner Growth by NCRC. It's a for-profit arm uh, of NCRC, so Ed can read a PNL sheet and he faces the same hurdles as any home builder in, in America does. Uh, Ed and I had the good fortune to work side by side for about a year while launching the Affordable Home Ownership Coalition. That's an alliance of lenders and home builders, and realtors, community and civil rights groups that have been dedicated to improving credit access to home loans, but also increasing the supply of, uh, of homes in America. We'd love your participation in the AHC, and, and we can talk about that a bit later. Uh, you know, our, our timing for the Affordable Home Ownership Coalition really couldn't have been more prescient. There's certainly never been a time in my tenure in the, uh, the home lending industry where there's been such bipartisan agreement on the issue of needing more homes. A few years back, for instance, uh, moderate uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives, so-called new Democrats, they published a report called Missing Millions of Homes. And it urged that local, state, federal policymakers all work together to find a way to cooperatively create 
more homes, uh, increase the stock of, uh, of housing for Americans. Even before the Trump administration left office, I think it was actually the last day they were in office, HUD published its long-awaited report about a year in the making that took a look into how best to eliminate regulatory barriers to affordable housing. Now, the Biden administration has introduced an infrastructure package, and it contains $200 billion targeted toward housing. Now, while most of these funds would be going toward uh, constructing or improving rental properties for low and very low income families, there is funding, about $20 billion worth, for rehabbing old housing stock and building new homes to grow home ownership. Now you've probably already heard and or know about the enormous racial home ownership gap. And if you haven't heard the statistics, we're gonna tell you a bit those later on today. But here's a few other figures that you might not be aware of. Consumption and investment in the US would soar by two to $3 trillion if we close the racial wealth gap. And that's according to uh, McKinsey and company. And, and the the Wealth gap, the most important characteristic is home ownership. That, that closing the racial wealth gap, McKinsey says, would put $6,000 to $8,500 in everybody's wallet. So closing this gap doesn't just help minorities. Closing the equity gap helps all of us. Citibank itself concluded that if we had closed the racial equity gap two decades ago, an additional 770,000 African-Americans would be homeowners. You know, combined expenditures on that would have pumped another $218 billion into the economy. That's, that's money that your company and my company could have made that we've actually just lost on and, and essentially we've lost that forever. And now we're just trying to play catch up going in the, in the future. In short, if we can work together to solve the minority homeownership challenge, lenders and mortgage insurers and community home builders, we're going to be a much more vibrant contributor to the economy. We're gonna have more business than what we know to do with. I mentioned Ed is a builder and a developer. I think he's also a visionary and he thinks big and never quite as big as what he's here to advocate for today. And that's a housing moonshot. So Ed, I'm gonna turn it over to you and then I'm gonna start sharing your uh, presentation. Well, thank you, Kirk. <clears throat> Thanks for the uh, introduction. And, uh, and I think you framed the issues very well. I think the, the issue we face here is really, you know, is, is no less important than the preservation of what we all think of as the American dream. Um, you know, I, I think for folks who come to this country um, in whatever way, in whatever form they come, they come in part because they believe in the dream that they can build wealth uh, and raise their families, and that a home to them, home to them, home to them, to them, long-term plan for their family success. Um, and that's no less true of the people already here who want to buy a home, and we know from previous uh, uh, surveys being done on this on the subject that in spite of what folks may have thought about the millennial generation, they are at least as interested in buying, buying and owning a home as previous generations were. It's well above 90%. But the problem of course is they're not there. Um, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about the why of that and what we need to do about it. What, what this, the title of this this presentation, the moonshot, home ownership moonshot, really refers to is this: we have had a shortfall in home building of any kind uh, that's lasted since the Great Recession. And whether you believe Freddie Mac's estimate of roughly four million, or you believe the home builders' estimate of six million, let's just pick the midpoint and call it five million homes in deficit today that should have been built just in the last decade plus. So um, if you would, uh, Kirk, uh, I'm not sure quite how this works, but go to the second shot. So, 
So here's our, no, no, I'm sorry. Pr prior page, if you don't mind. All right. That's the one with uh, right. Kennedy on the cover. Yeah, let's, see, let's see if we can get this going here. All right. So here's here's the the sense we have of this. You know, once upon a time we did big things in this country, but it's been a while since we have. And interestingly enough, we just did a big thing. We developed a vaccine in record time to inoculate the public. And of course, it feels as though it was too long. But of course, in the history of vaccine development. It was the fastest ever created. Now the question is, can we do for the, the, the generations that would like to be homeowners, the same kind of thing that we've done, although it'll take longer, clearly. And it'll take far more than just what happened in 1961 when Kennedy uh, developed the, the moonshot challenge. Um, he was able to galvanize public interest and the federal government behind the effort to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Well, we think that it's time to use the same thinking, the same large thinking about how to really make up the deficit as it applies to home ownership. The supply is miserable. And I speak as someone who literally in the last two weeks sold my own home. Um, on the market, two days. 22 people in a weekend without even an open house. And on the Monday following the Saturday listing, four offers all over asking, competing with each other. And mine is, is I live in Silver Spring. It's not a, it's not a well-to-do part of Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, it's it's diverse, which I love, but it's not it's not particularly, you know. And Glover Park, you saw some of you may have seen the the article in the Wall Street Journal, seventy-six offers on a house that went on the market. Uh, it was a fixer-upper, and it was listed for 275 had 76 offers, all but 19 were all cash, and the final sale price was $440,000, less than a week after they put it on the market. It's these kinds of imbalances in the market that make it impossible for working-class people to own a home. They can't compete. They don't have the all-cash capability. They can't waive inspections. And they're having to do it anyway, waiving appraisals and hoping that they can afford it. The fact is that, that when folks find homeownership out of reach, they become disengaged, disenfranchised, and otherwise not connected to the America that we all grew up knowing, at least in my generation. So our thought here is it's time to reconsider how we view homeownership and re-engage and reinvest. And that it's not okay to have a black home ownership rate of 44%, which is the lowest since the civil rights era, or a Latino home ownership rate of 49%, when whites are at 74%. So what do we think we need to do? Here's the, here's the summary. We think we need to build 20 million homes next decade, next decade, next decade, decade. On average, we should be building 1.2 a year anyway. We're 5 million behind. You can do the math on that. That gets you to 17. If you want to bring black and, and brown home ownership rates up to 60%, just 60%, we estimate you're going to need at least another million and a half homes built. So you see where we are. It's, it's the kind of big proposal that once upon a time galvanized this country. And, you know, just for a little bit of history on this, um, let's go to the next slide, please. Okay. Um, Get this. So, sure. Uh, I was gonna go back to World War II and, and whoa. Goodness, okay, so let me, we'll, we're we'll get so oriented. So much love. Um, I know. So look, I mean, coming out of World War II, the country understood that there were a lot of returning veterans and they didn't have housing. And so we passed the GI Bill. And the GI Bill was great for those that participated. And in fact, black home ownership rates rose significantly in the period following the enactment of the GI Bill. But we're talking about going from 19 to 38%. 
And it wasn't until we passed the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act that it went up further. Um, but we did a couple of things really well. So we had low down payment. We had VA loans at 1%. We had the GI Bill to help folks with their, both their education and financing housing. And then in the mid-50s, we passed the Federal Highway Act. And so we created the infrastructure to get people to the homes that could be built in the suburbs. And since then, we really haven't emphasized home ownership. And in many ways, you know, I mean, we've had the mortgage interest deduction, everybody understands that. And most people thought that was a critical underpinning to, to housing and home ownership. Um, but as a policy of the United States, we have not seen a home ownership policy. No, Bill Clinton had a home ownership policy to increase home ownership. So did, so did George Bush II. And there were concomitant rises in home ownership rates during their presidencies. But an overt home ownership uh, proposal that, in, that builds infrastructure to meet the needs of builders. Um, the home builders estimate it costs $85,000 to put a shovel in the ground. I know that that's largely true. Now that's across all housing, not you know, all priced housing. But consider what we could do if we made it easier to build. And in this respect, I'm a community guy. And so when Kirk talks about the American Home Ownership Coalition that we formed three years ago, what we, what we did was essentially recognize that left and right agree on about 90% of the issue here. That we've got, that, that focusing on, on access to credit and capital is not gonna get the job done. If you don't create more inventory, you're simply not touching the problem. So let me go to the next slide, please. You know, we believe home ownership is infrastructure and it's, I'm really glad to see that the Biden administration is now agreeing with that. We've called for that and we're glad that they're listening on that issue because it clearly is. Now there's some folks on, uh, on one side of the aisle, I won't say which one, who, who challenged that. But I, I honestly think, you know, yes, you've got bridges, you've got tunnels, you've got roads. But if housing isn't a critical leg and the three-legged stool that supports families as they grow, I don't know what is. It's income, it's housing, and it's health. Those three things. Without housing, without affordable housing, People can't live a stable life. They can't build wealth. And we know from experience that over 80% of Americans build wealth this way, through home ownership. So I know I'm preaching to the choir here uh, because folks who do mortgages understand this. Um, we've got to get that word out and get people to understand that being in support of building more homes, because we're not going to renovate our way out of this. There's just not enough inventory. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that they're, they're focusing on a renovation element in the infrastructure bill, but the truth is they're gonna find what we know. We go out there, our fund, and we buy in low and moderate income census tracts, and we build in low and moderate income census tracts, or to benefit low and moderate income buyers in any census tract. That's our entire reason for being. We can't find the inventory, so we're having to build our way out of it. And the opportunities are there. Finding builders who will build affordably is a challenge. Having, let's move on because I'm, I'm covering a bunch of things that are probably covered better in, in some of this other stuff. So we see it in two ways. You've got a preservation side that Kirk will talk about here. And then you've got new construction. And both of these things really need to be focused on in order for us to get out of the mess we're in. Kirk, why don't you talk about preservation side? So, so on, on, on the preservation side, it, it is interesting. The, the administration has gotten behind what is called the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. Uh, and, and this is something that they would set aside about $20 billion for. It would be limited to, uh, to people who yeah. earn no more than about 120% of the, uh, the area median income or, or that particular neighborhood community income. Uh, and the, the funds would be going toward targeted first-time home builders or, or home buyers uh, so that they can begin to take 
older stock of homes, renovate those. Now, the, the beauty about this is this is a, a tax credit program. It's modeled under the, the uh, or after the low income housing tax credit, which is used for multifamily purposes. But in, in this case, a, a builder or a developer could come in, they could rehab a house and they could sell the house. Now, if they end up selling the house below what it costs for, to, to buy and to rehabilitate it, that's where the tax credit comes in. And, and the tax credit could be used to make up that difference between what uh, the, the actual cost of it was and what it could be sold for, because there will be limits on how much those homes can be sold depending on the particular neighborhood that they're in. The idea is again, let's carefully target home ownership here toward either first generational home buyers or first time home buyers. Uh, and there's a couple other efforts that are being made on the demand side, and, and we can talk about those later on, but, but you probably are familiar with the, the Biden tax credit concept. And more recently, there's been a new plan out there uh, that would give uh, first generational home buyers uh, funds for either a down payment or to pay closing costs or maybe to buy down an interest rate. So a, a number of these things, but by carefully targeting them toward first generational or first time home buyers, they hope that it won't spur demand so much that it will just send uh, home prices soaring because that's the that's the struggle we're in right now is is demand right now as Ed talked in his own personal experience far outweighs supply. We don't want to do anything that's going to make it even worse and make it even harder for low and moderate income people to get into. Well, and Kirk, it's it's you know funny you mentioned that it's kind of a question that bubbled up to me right away when you kind of laid out some of the. The info related to the tax credit towards particularly like LMI census tracts and being able to cover some of the down payment items or additional funding. And I would imagine soaring home prices can quickly kind of throw that equation out of whack too. Fair assessment. Uh, I think Ed can speak to that for the, the, the customers that he's trying to put into homes. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Tom. Uh, it, it, there is a a conundrum here that, that you face when you when you say, oh, let's build 20 million homes. Um, we have a high cost of lumber to begin with. What's that going to do to lumber costs? We've got shortfall of labor. What's that going to do to labor costs? I mean, I, I you know, but but folks who raise those questions and I with no disrespect intended, generally don't have an alternative. I mean, the alternative is not to sit, you know, and, and accept the status quo, because if you do the housing market is already so far out of whack. The inventory is already so low and the interest rates are so low that the combination is causing home prices to rise precipitously just in the last few months. I mean, but for the demand, you would think we were approaching a bubble, um, you know, because this is the kind of behavior we saw in the market in 2006, 2007. And, and so, how is this not like that? Well, we're, we're, the underwriting has changed, as everybody who knows mortgages understands. The, the risk profiles have changed. The demand is higher than it's ever been. And let's let's understand, too, in terms of family formation and demographics, the crest of the millennial wave has not even a, hit the peak first-time homebuyer age of 31, which we traditionally see in the market. So, if the demand already looks like this before that crest has occurred, can you imagine what will happen once it does? Uh, so, you know, there's only really, in my view, I'm, I'm delighted that that we are treating housing as infrastructure. I'm delighted that we've set aside, it looks like enough money to do about a half a million homes for low and, and middle-class home buyers that are in the renovation category. And there are some cities that will really benefit from that. Places like Baltimore, you know, um, Detroit, maybe some parts of Chicago, et cetera. But there are the inventory-starved markets already out there. And those aren't going to help much because you're not going to find the houses to apply the renovation dollars to. So it's going to be a market-by-market market kind of shift. I think the real bottom line here is we have to build our way out of this. And you can raise these other issues and rightfully should. Uh, I do think lumber prices are going to head back down. 
Um, you know, and I see somebody asking about Hempwood. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if you want to get Republican support for home building, talk about alternative products and, and, and sources like hemp. You'll get Mitch McConnell on board in a hurry because Kentucky's one of the biggest hemp producing states in the country. I mean, you're, you know, so those are all thoughtful things. We also have to think about carbon neutral building, new technology to bring to bear on the housing side. And all of this stuff can only happen if you essentially first call for a big, hairy, audacious idea. And if you don't, it won't happen. But people will be forced to innovate when you do. And I think looking at things like manufactured and modular housing, which in many ways is a truer form of development, uh, looking at you know 3D printing, small now, Maybe it takes hold. We don't know. It's a very, this industry is very, very hard to change. Anybody yeah. who knows construction knows that. I mean, but, I had another quick question come in just asking, like, how can we get more affordable housing built for first time and an LMI borrower footprints outside of building more tiny homes? So, you, you know, so if there are some markets where you can build normal sized homes, you know, the Southeast particularly and the South. The pricing is still such. I mean, we're about to start in partnership with the mayor of Birmingham, building 24 units will be announced next week. And it's the first of three phases. We can build and and make, we don't have to make a lot of money. We have to make 10%. And if we do that, we can build in places like Birmingham. But you're right. We're going to have to do things like tiny homes, auxiliary dwelling units. You also have density problems you have to tackle. And so this isn't just a federal mandated change issue. I mean, you can par- provide carrots, maybe some sticks, and you can try to get the incentives aligned. But there's also going to have to be local citizenry who that say it's no longer acceptable that single-family residential zoning has parking requirements when we don't use cars nearly the way we did. It's or has minimum you know, acreage requirements when you can build vertically and maybe, you know, you don't have to have setbacks that are quite as big. Um, There are ways to do it. You also have to think about things like fast tracking, affordable home building, meaning permitting processes. That, that, those delays are, as anybody who builds knows, are killers. Your profit, I mean, we've been waiting a year for permits in Fulton County to build 46 homes. It kills you. What was a profitable project? Now, what's saving us, frankly, on that is is speculative rises in in costs. I mean, in 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 home prices. But the truth is, we don't want that in our markets. We can't rely on that going forward, because as Kirk was saying, these are unsustainable increases over time. So, I, I, Kirk, I don't know if you want to comment further on that. Well, and, and and the other thing, Tom, I think is particularly frustrating is that this isn't an issue that everyone can agree on politically, even within the same party. I was just reading that the other day, while the Biden administration is putting together funds that will try to encourage um, cities to to lower these restrictions, lower these barriers, land use barriers to to building more. Uh, The secretary of HUD, Marcia Fudge, she's a former mayor and she says she's very reluctant to take money away from cities uh, that uh, aren't willing to make these type of changes. So uh, even within the same party, there, there's disagreements that are gonna make these really tough and it's gonna take uh, the efforts of, of lenders like, like you guys are and, and others in the, in the, uh, the stream of, of mortgage finance to try to persuade uh, policymakers at the local, state, and federal levels to make these type of changes. You know, um, Kirk, I want to pick up on that for a minute. You know, I think in mo- in many cases, historically, folks who are on the finance side don't generally think of themselves as advocates for home building in a sense. I mean, they, you know, in some ways they've got enough trouble trying to figure out how to align the, the underwriting requirements so that they fit. Um, but I, I've got to believe that anybody in this marketplace is looking at a, an end to the refinancing era 
and wondering where the mortgages are going to come from. Well, if inventories, if inventory remains where it is, and I humbly suggest you need to be advocating for more building and you need to align yourself with, with groups locally that indicate they want to do it. You know, there's YIMBY, Yes in My Backyard in California. There's Neighbors for More Neighbors in, in Minneapolis, where they, you know, a, a, a social media driven group, millennials got together and basically forced a, 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 a rescinding of the, of the single family um, uh, zoning ordinance in the, in the city of Minneapolis in a year. Um, completely torched it uh, because they realized they couldn't reform it. Um, I think you're going to see more of this kind of thing. And so I think it behooves us to get ahead of this. I think it also makes good sense to make common cause with folks that are otherwise thought of as strange bedfellows. If you have a group that does community advocacy in, in your region, they might be a good candidate to hook up with to help them get over the finish line on what the, on the work they're trying to do. And I don't think it's okay. I think sitting on the sidelines is going to get you more of what you got now, an upside down market. So um, look, I mean, Urban Institute, here's a good stat. I don't know what happened there, but the Urban Institute is projecting a 3% drop in the overall home ownership rate if we continue doing what we're doing now. And we're already at, relatively low home ownership rate. Um, I think it's right, right about 65%. Um, we were up closer to 70 during the Clinton and Bush two eras, but whatever you think of it, you don't want to see it drop. Um, and I'm sure folks on the phone don't want to see it drop. Uh, you know, and then, and the real problem is, is the social inequity for black owners, particularly, you're going to see a 9% drop between boomers and, and black millennials. Um, that's the wrong direction for this country to be going, in my view. Anyway, Absolutely. next one. So we talked about the home ownership rates. Um, I think folks know that uh, people of color are spending disproportionately on housing, uh, well over the 30% mark that most people recommend. Um, let's go to the next one. Sure. Yeah, so I, I think the other thing to think about here, and it's hard to think long term when you're in a day-to-day -day business, right? And and folks in the in the mortgage side are thinking day to day, um, or week to week, you know, month to month. But think long term. What what is the impact of a decline in home ownership rates, particularly for communities of color, which represent about eighty-five percent of the expected growth uh, among homeowners uh, in the next uh, 10, 15 years, according to Harvard Center. So it's from our, you know, it just, it just strikes me as bad business um, and bad for business. Uh, so, you know, if you want a society that's susceptible to the kinds of polarization and division we've seen in the last four years, continue doing what you're doing. So anyway, let's move on. Um, these are the issues we see that need that are the challenge walk through them here and and all of the and all let's start with labor um we lost a huge segment of the workforce at the, during the great recession it was a depression for the construction industry it wasn't a recession and and we lost 645,000 people just in construction alone um and then a lot of folks who were immigrant labor whatever your position is on immigration the fact is that was a critical part of the of the economy, uh, particularly for home building. And, 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 we, and we can't immediately make up those with, you know, high, new high school graduates. They're not just going to suddenly they, they don't, first of all, want to be in the, in the construction fields. Well, that's a that's an important point, Kirk. Um, you know, before I did what I'm doing now at NCRC, I ran a national organization focused on workforce development. And I, 80% of what I did was involved in construction. And so we did pre-apprenticeship programs in 40 cities and states and primarily worked with public housing authorities because that's where the people are. And built pre-apprenticeship programs and put thousands of people through it. 
and we still came up short. Um, you know, it's it, it it's it's tough work. Uh, it's good work. It's important work. Workforce development, pre-apprenticeship training, um, but the numbers we're talking about here aren't going to be done by that on that basis alone. And also, the industry has a problem, right? Construction, big problem, an image problem. People don't want to get their hands dirty. You know, people even working in construction don't want their kids doing it because they think it's somehow, you know. But we we haven't made it attractive for people to be in this industry. We haven't told people that it's a, a good, honest trade that can make you, you know, six figures. Exactly. Uh, particularly if you're, you're, yeah, I mean, if you're an HVAC technician, a plumber, electrician, you're going to make six figures easily. Right. And we've spent, um, what, two generations now wholly focused on you've got to have a, a four-year bachelor's degree or you can't, yes. you know, have a career of value and financial worth. Exactly. And how many people, what percentage of people make it through college? You got to, anybody have a guess? 25% at best. 25. But... 25%. So what does that say for the other 75% of the people who don't? What are we doing for those folks? So, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a, and I've got a, a, a particular workshop at our upcoming conference, NCRC conference on the future of work. So those folks who are interested in this topic, please join that conversation. Um, and we'll talk a lot about what it is we need to do for reskilling purposes and really focusing on adult education, uh, particularly adult learning techniques, and getting people geared up much more quickly than we do in, in the community college setting. We, we really have to change how we do business on that side. But, it, you know, and these are all kinds of innovations that we need to force now. Um, whether we do it for the moonshot or we do it for other reasons, the workforce development system has to change. So I think we will find that there's a groundswell to do that. And there's new technology out there that makes it attractive. Um, so lumber, we know what the problem is, right? We're at three times what we should be for oriented strand board. I mean, Three times the price. The average cost to build a home has gone up roughly $15,000 just for lumber costs. Uh, and if you're building affordably, that's about 10% of your total cost right there. Um, and so you've got other, you got appliance delays. It takes three months or longer, sometimes four months to get your appliances now. Um, capital costs, even at low interest rates, they build up. Um, so, you know, what, the other thing is we really haven't focused on technology in this industry. It's a highly, the industry that's highly resistant to change. Um, but I think change is going to have to come. Change is definitely going to have to come for the industry in the next 10 years because they just, it's just not sustainable. If you can't have some labor saving devices and I'm a labor lawyer by trade union side. So if I'm saying this, <laughs> you know, it has to happen. I mean, we need some labor-saving approaches to building in this industry. Um, so whether we do it manufacturer modular or we come up with new ways to, to use technology on the job site, it's got to happen. Um, what else have we got here? Landing infrastructure. You know, yeah, the, the, I, the, the, the other issue I, I would throw out, and I know it's a, it's a problem, and, and it, it's nothing that I think it's uh, folks on the line would understand is the AD&C lending has become yeah. really problematic yeah. for the the builders, developers. Explain AD&C lending. Right. Acquisition, development, and, and construction. And right. uh, it, it has become a real problem. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of bending by federal regulators. That's another area that I think that the policymakers need to look into is, is uh, reducing some of the restrictions on banks to make loans because it is keeping uh, the, the supply down. Yeah, and mortgage folks will understand, too, that the risk weighting that the banks are required to have on this kind of lending is disproportionately high. So they don't want to make those loans. And really, over the last 20 years, ADC lending has declined precipitously. So if we want to build, we need to free up. And I mean, what better time with low, low interest uh, in the marketplace to do this? It's the same thing is true with mortgages. What better time for people to buy a house than now? My God, 
I mean, so, okay, so let's let's move on if you don't mind. I mean, you got zoning issues. Uh, I, we've talked about that a bit. Clearly, that's got to be a focus going forward. So our view on this is if you don't think big, it won't happen. And it's it's okay. In fact, it's more than okay to call for building and doing big things in this country again. Um, I think if we do it, or something like the moonshot idea, we give ourselves a sense of what it is to be an American, frankly, and what the American dream still stands for. I, you know, I know that sounds corny. Um, I don't know of any other way to say it, but if you really want to see people can stay connected to this country and have hope for their future and their children's future, we got to start with housing. We got to start with home ownership. That's my view. So. I thank everybody for listening. Happy to take any questions. Thank you so much, Ed. And that's a reminder for our attendees. Any questions, comments you have for Ed or Kirk or, uh, you know, ideas you kind of want their take on, feel free to drop those in the chat or Q&A boxes. Um, got a couple lined up here. Have you guys seen any stats out there kind of prognosticating on how getting out of the pandemic will impact construction from a supply cost standpoint or, you know, helping shore up maybe some of the, the labor shortages that builder workforces are, are currently facing towards kind of putting a dent in the overall uh, supply shortage that we're currently seeing? You want to take that, Kirk? You want me to? Well, I was wondering what your real life experience is. What What are you finding well, when you're trying to build these homes? Well, so that's a great, I mean, we, you know, construction was considered essential during the pandemic in all but one state, Pennsylvania. So we were able to continue. Now there was disruption, no question about it. And some of our crews, we did unfortunately have folks fall ill. And of course, that's disruptive and very painful for the people who have to go through it. But it wasn't the labor shortage that was the issue. Certainly material shortages and supplies were a problem. But we built, as an example, we, we built 20 homes in Columbus, Ohio on a community land trust project there in the middle of the pandemic and we got it all done in eight months. Uh, we came in five weeks early and uh, $20,000 under, under budget on each house. So, I mean, it, it can be done. And, now the issue is, well, coming out of the pandemic, I think lumber prices will come down. I think that's one of the benefits of coming out of the pandemic, because I think the, you know, the mills were not fully staffed. You had the, the tariff costs from, from Canada that were affecting it. I do think lumber costs will come down. I think labor shortages are here, with, for, are here for a while. Um, I do know that the administration put a lot of money into workforce development, but I don't, that's not an overnight problem. That's not solved overnight. That's a multi-year effort that, that'll, you know, it'll take the full decade to really bring that up. Um, you know, materials from China, you know, we're still dependent on, on appliances that come from China. Um, you know, they're back and running, but the shipping lanes are clogged as you guys saw with the Suez Canal not too long ago. I, I just, you know, we seem to be having trouble with the shipping side and I don't know when that gets cleared up. I hope soon. So I mean, some things are good come out of the pandemic. I think lower costs a bit, uh, but I think some other things are going to take, you know, five years or longer to really work itself and, out. And and Tom, on kind of a related, it's it's too early to know, but you know, has the the work from home change uh, will it have positive effects and actually that people may leave crowded areas. Uh, move out to other areas and that way free up some space that right now is in some of these cities. Might we see office buildings that uh, aren't going to be used anymore? Might they be converted to uh, affordable yeah. housing? So, yeah. you know, that, but, but again, I think as Ed was saying, these are really long-term issues. These are not going to be solved between uh, 20, 21, 22. Yeah. One other thing I'll say, I think, you know, the before the pandemic, we saw the beginning of people leaving cities and moving to suburbs. The pandemic essentially made everybody crave a front door. So they don't want to live in vertical buildings. They want to have, a you know, their own home and they want to live in a, you know, in a place where they can bring kids up 
And so this exodus from cities to suburbs, I think, is going to continue, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. No, great points. I mean, we've seen that just for an uptick in interest on obviously the renovation side as people kind of continue to reinvent how they use their homes as dual purpose for work as well as, um, you know, daycare for children. And uh, with soaring home prices, it almost adds to the motivation to, to you know, build up instead of uh, buying up. Yeah, some of the some of the best investments had been uh, Home Depot and Lowe's. They th- those stocks <laughs> did very well during several times. Yeah, great points. Um, another question here: Have regulations at a state level also been a contributing depressant towards more ho- affordable housing initiatives being able to take flight and kind of dent the uh, the supply gap? Well, you know, we we've seen. Um, Certainly, I, I think that they, they've made it more difficult, but we're also seeing some progress. For example, the state of Oregon uh, did kind of what Minneapolis did. They've essentially said almost everywhere in their state, except for a few spots, uh, you can no longer have a single family zoning only there. So it opens up the possibility for multifamily duplexes, triplexes, uh, quadplexes to be built in neighborhoods uh, and, and really increase the density. That, that we're seeing. So there, there are some very positive, uh, hopeful signs, I think. Ed, Ed, Ed and I have talked a lot about, uh, in, in the past, the accessory dwelling units. You're, you're seeing states and, and, and juris, local jurisdictions saying it's okay to have another uh, site, uh, an, another structure on your, uh, on your home. Uh, it could be a converted garage. It could be something in the backyard. Um, and, and that will increase the, the units. Yep. Yeah. I think it's going to take a lot of those things. It's going, we're going to have to be really creative about how we do it, but we have to be relentless about it. Um, and we have to demand better than we're getting out of state and local government, as well as at the federal level. And, you know, it, it's, you know, it's funny because I approached Jerry Howard, who's the head of the home builders a couple of years ago when we were talking about this coalition I said, look, we agree on 90% of things. Why aren't we working together on this stuff? Community advocates working alongside home builders, right? What a concept. Um, But it's starting to work. I just think we're still a long way off. And somebody has to articulate an actual number in order for us to get there. I I don't think we're going to do it just kind of lurching our way there. Agree. And so I've got one more question for you guys, but a quick couple plugs here. As Ed mentioned earlier, uh, the Just Economy 2021 conference coming up next, uh, actually next Wednesday and Thursday, May 3rd and the 4th. I do have a link in the chat uh, if you'd like to take a look for some more information on that. Um, And And it goes all the way to the end of the following week. Oh, even better. Yeah. And then also I want a quick plug for Kurt, uh, who puts together a biweekly uh, video co- podcast from ArchMI called the Policy Cast. Kind of a great way to keep mortgage, mortgage and uh, housing professionals really up to date on kind of future policy and, initiatives. That and and Tom, shape. if I can say, the, the most recent guest has was uh, Jerry Howard at the National Association of Home Builders. And we touched on this very uh, issue, the the real difficult challenges that the builders have to meet the demand. Yeah. So link in there for the, uh, the policy cast site, great opportunity to check out some more compelling content that Kurt led really central to this uh, issue. That's going to be gripping us for a while. So you guys, you, you, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I think it's a perfect opportunity to reiterate what can a mid-market lender, yeah, I think of a typical mortgage collaborative lender, do on their end to help support um, more affordable lending efforts, whether it's on the advocacy side or um, you know, through their affiliations organizationally? And, and why don't you take that? Well, I mean, Kirk and I both work on this. Join AHC, the Affordable Home Ownership Coalition. I mean, because we're we're finding a bunch of like-minded folks, industry, community, banking, et cetera, that, that come together in that space. And, and we get a chance to sort of share ideas, notes, and connect folks 
to the uh, kind of advocacy that's going on in local communities. Um, and then I, I would say simply, you know, uh, NCRC, I didn't, say, I didn't say what NCRC was, and you asked me to do it, and I didn't do it. Uh, but we're a coalition of nonprofit organizations from around the country, about 700 of them. And we really were formed to fight redlining and, um, and, and in support of the Community Reinvestment Act. The organizations we have are hungry for these kinds of partnerships. So if you have a, somebody who's willing to you know, lock arms or at least have a conversation with local community organizations about what they can be doing to help move the needle on this, we're happy to help broker that. So uh, those are my thoughts, Kirk. No, I, I, I think that, that says it all. Get, get involved, you know, get involved with your local uh, mortgage bankers association. Make sure that they're advocating at their, at their local level and at their state level. And we know the MBA is, is advocating for this, but make sure that they're, they're active and, and they're spending the time to talk to their legislators and tell them the story of why we need more homes. There's nothing, there's really nothing better than the personal stories. It, it, it's great for people in Washington to talk to legislators, but there's nothing like the business, local businessmen sitting and explaining the issues uh, to, to their local representatives. I think it's a perfect way to close here. So Kirk, Ed, I really appreciate the time, the discussion, the information. Obviously, there's a lot of different steps we can take out there, but it's going to, as you guys you know, eloquently put it, really a, a massive collective effort um, over the long haul and relentless from you know really all parties involved to, to help push affordable housing and this uh, supply inventory gap forward. So as always, I thank you both for the time and I uh, really appreciate the insights today and, and look forward to sharing with our attendees uh, recording information as well as a copy of the deck and the follow-up. Great. We look forward thank to continuing to work with the Mortgage Collaborative. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.